Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the Financial Brand. The best way to increase sales, loyalty, and customer satisfaction is to reduce the effort needed to proceed along the customer journey. Jeff Bezos said, when you reduce friction, make something easy, people do more of it. Your customers have been trained by companies like Amazon, Google, Uber, Netflix, Rocket Mortgage, and others that processes can be simplified in a digital world, making it easy to do business anywhere, at any time, on any device. The key is to be able to identify these roadblocks and change them for the benefit of both your company and the consumer. In this week's episode, we are joined by Roger Dooley, author of the books Brainfluence, 100 Ways to Persuade and Convince Consumers with Neural Marketing, and his latest book, Friction, The Untapped Force That Can Be Your Most Powerful Advantage. During the interview, Roger shares how behavioral science can help identify and eliminate the friction that can destroy a customer experience. So welcome to the show, Roger. As I was preparing for today's show, I realized that we have somewhat similar backgrounds, not starting in the uh, marketing field to begin with, and then jumping into direct marketing, partially for the love of being able to test and measure results from the marketing efforts. I believe it was during your direct marketing days that you really began to study the intersection of a person's thought process with marketing. Didn't it result in your first book, Brainfluence, 100 Ways to Persuade and Convince Customers with Neuromarketing, as well as your very popular blog, neuroscienceMarketing.com, correct? First of all, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate that. It's an honor. And, you know, I can trace my interest in the psychology of advertising and marketing back to my college days. Weirdly enough, when I was studying engineering, of all things, I had a couple of side interests. One was psychology. I ended up minoring in psychology. And the other was advertising, and I can't really explain it, but when I was supposed to be studying differential equations and organic chemistry instead, I would be in the library reading ad age. Uh, So I put that stuff aside for a while, but it was definitely, as you say, during my direct marketing days, when I really began to get back into that, well, you know, how do we drive behavior? Although then it was little more analytical than psychological. We use the direct marketing data with square inch analysis and catalogs and list analysis and, uh, you know, all these things, even some A-B testing in kind of a rudimentary way in those days to try and understand what drove customer behavior and what would enable us to sell a little bit more. Because in the catalog business in particular, if you can sell just a little bit more, that expands your opportunities to grow. Well, and it's interesting because I was kind of weeding myself out of direct marketing as a, I actually sold direct mail. I was selling it to financial institutions. So my background is such that uh, I've always been in financial services, both on one side of the desk and then the other, but I moved into the direct marketing area where, you know, we were, we were talking about envelopes and postage and how much paper and what size packages, what color envelopes, all these strange things. And it was fun because you could touch so many things. But, you know, when digital marketing came along, a lot of the, you know, we talk about the not being able to pivot. A lot of the direct marketing firms, you know, they were used to making money on paper. And it's a different dynamic when you're putting just thoughts out there and creative out there and you can't mark up uh, paper, which is crazy. But that's what we were doing back then. So over the past few decades, what's the biggest change you've seen in marketing as we've moved from paper in the mailbox to digital engagement? There's obviously a million changes. Uh, One is the ease of changing what you're doing. You know, uh, when 
we printed catalogs. We had to print a few hundred thousand of these things, and you couldn't change them the next day. <laughs> Those things were done uh, until your next cycle happened a couple of months later. So uh, these days, you know, you can change your website on the fly. You can change your app on the fly. You can so that's that's one huge change, and it gives us a lot of flexibility, and it gives us tremendous ability to test. And to me, that might be the biggest thing is that today we can see what works and what doesn't in practically in real time. Which is interesting because, you know, we used to rely on our clients to give us the results back. And the same people that were pulling lists were also analyzing the results. So the pulling of the lists always took priority. So there'd be times, it'd be six months before we finally got a results of something. By then, the whole marketplace has changed. Right. And yeah, today you can adapt very quickly. You know, people often uh, say, well, we're going to do a uh, new website. Well, you know, ask yourself, when was the last time Amazon changed their website design? And you scratch your head and say, well, uh, gee, I don't really remember when. And that's because they've never done a big web design rollout the way uh, many companies still do, even today in 2020. Instead, they are constantly testing. They are running hundreds of simultaneous tests on different little features to see what works and what doesn't. Every now and then, if you pay careful attention, you can spot one of those tests underway or see a design change. And then sometimes you'll see that, oh, gee, after a week it went away or it stays there forever. And if it stayed there forever, then you know it works. So to me, the, Amazon is a great uh, tool for all of us. You know, if you see that they're doing something on their website, it isn't that somebody had a good idea and they're just randomly doing that. It's there because they have tested it and it increased their conversion rate in their sales. Well, it's funny because you, you mentioned that and, and Chase Bank in the banking world, you know, they, they for years were doing the same package or a variation on the package to get new checking account customers. And people go, you know, why don't they change their design? I said, they're changing everything. The reality is they keep on testing. And the reason why it works is they know what dollar value they have to provide to get you to take action in what neighborhood, at what price point. And, and the thing is, they're, they're running so many at once that they can just do things that smaller firms at that point couldn't really do. You know, when you look at the ability to actually study the human brain, the reaction to various stimuli and behavior that results from marketing efforts, it used to be only done by the largest firms. So I mentioned a Chase or an Amazon. Because of the analytic tools and advanced technology, though, this type of analysis and, and reading of the customer's behavior it's really available to firms of all sizes, isn't it? Oh, definitely. And uh, one of the reasons I wrote my first book, Brainfluence, was to try and translate some of the scientific ideas that big companies were using into actionable strategies that just about any size business could do, both large and small. There's a wealth of scientific knowledge out there, and big companies, uh, more so even today than a few years ago, employ behavioral science teams. And they may be developing marketing interventions, they may be developing human resources interventions, uh, but they are there to apply this science in their business. But obviously, most small and medium businesses can't afford a behavioral science team, but they can use those same ideas. And the other part of the equation is the testing. These days, you can get uh, so many different tools for measuring user behavior, whether it's in, on your website, in your app. You know, you can be seeing what people are clicking on, how long they're spending on a page, how, what, uh, obviously, you can do various kinds of A-B testing, and all of this stuff can be ridiculously cheap compared to what it used to be, which was rather costly. So, you know, there, there's really no excuse for any size business not doing more that way, because so often 
we make decisions because it's somebody's opinion. Uh, you know, the, the classic is the hippo, the highest paid person's opinion. Right. Uh, and, you know, that's the way we still make decisions in business in many cases. And it's really the wrong way to do it. Well, it's interesting because, again, a lot of the, as I worked in the direct marketing agency and moved for the digital marketing agency, the biggest stumbling block was usually legacy thinking, which is, is not unlike the challenge we have at every organization still today. But within marketers, it can be really damaging because if you don't have an analytic mindset, if you don't have, if you come back to the madmen type era or the advertising agency type era, and you've not moved forward in your thinking process, your marketing suffers and the organization suffers. And I think what's really unique, and, and when you look at virtually every firm in every industry, talk about the need for customer centricity and a better customer experience as part of the mission statement. How can it be that so many firms seem to at least continually miss the mark on an engagement basis? Well, I think it's because their emphasis on customer centricity in their mission statement doesn't carry through into their key behaviors and what they really prioritize. You know, I think in so many different companies, both financial firms and in just about every area, they are customer-centric until it comes to the point where, hey, we're not going to make this quarter's numbers or this year's numbers. And then suddenly those customer experience improvements can wait until the following year. And again, the example of how to do it is Jeff Bezos at Amazon. He's basically said, I am not worried about the shareholders. They do not try and make a number every year. He says that if we take care of the customer, then the shareholders will get taken care of. And indeed, they have. They've achieved far higher returns than just about any other publicly traded stock over the last 20 years despite the fact that Bezos is really not trying to manage the numbers. If he would have been trying to manage a nice progression of earnings growth the way so many companies are, they would be a much smaller, less successful company today. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I go back to the beginning of Amazon, and for a while there, it almost seemed like the uh, AOL model of dropping uh, those floppy disks in the mail because they were simply saying, if I get mass the rest will come. And they were paying a lot per customer. They were not making money for the longest period of time. And everybody challenged what he was doing just the same way that in the more modern era for them, people challenged all the different things that they are fast to fail. I mean, look at the number of devices that they've tested through time and they just haven't been successful. You know, their Alexa device at times has, has been good, bad. It's been different shapes, different sizes. You know, their Dash device, everything else. Some have worked, some haven't. But when you look back and you see the progression of thinking, the logic was still there. It was still the customer first. Right. And their Fire Phone is another great Amazon oh, yeah. failure. Yeah. But apparently they were able to take some of that learning as they were developing Alexa and some of their other devices. So... But that's really a structural thing, too. In so many big companies, the way you achieve personal success, the way you get pay raises and promotions, is by not screwing up and by making your boss happy. Well, especially in banking, where risk probably one of the highest things you look at and saying, no, we don't want to take risk. And, you, and that gets so broadly defined, the return gets lost. Right. And, you know, you've got to say, as uh, Amazon and many, and there are certainly many other companies that do that, say, hey, look, 
We understand that you're going to fail. We celebrate failures. I mean, if you've got uh, nine out of 10 failures, then maybe you're not the right person. But if you are winning more than you're losing and your successes are good, then you will be forgiven a few failures, particularly if you failed quickly. In other words, you didn't keep pouring more money into it while it was clearly going to fail, which that also happens. People get invested in an idea and they keep pursuing it even at the point where it is obviously not going to be a winner anytime soon. You know, it's interesting, Roger, is when we look at an Amazon and, and Google, the way they leverage data to make the entire experience seamless is really unique in that while you don't even know what's going on in the background, they make it so that your answer, what you want personally, is going to be exactly what you want sooner rather than later. Very much like the catalog business where you'd say, I want the product that the customer wants to be front and center for them. And the next person may get something else in the front. But, you know, I know what I'm going to get in my Amazon requests. I'm going to get black or red. I'm going to get brand name. And most importantly, I want it delivered tomorrow. Google, the way they can force fill the rest of your search. But what's interesting is that's when you look at it, you think, okay, that's just using data effectively. But really, their their real mission is to make it so you spend less time with them, isn't it? Uh, less time and, more importantly, less effort. Uh, there's been some amazing research from Gartner, the big market research company, that shows how customer effort affects loyalty. And the number's really staggering. They measured in one uh, set of data high-effort customer service interactions, or actually they measured customer service interactions and compared high-effort ones with low-effort ones. And the first interesting point is the way they define high-effort is whether the customer considered it high-effort. And that's an important distinction because you may be better than your competitors at minimizing what customers have to do to deal with you, but they are not comparing you to your competition. They're comparing you to Amazon, to Uber, and to every other seamless experience they have. And if you are not as low effort, then you are high effort. So anyway, what they found was that customers who had a high effort interaction were about 94% likely to be disloyal compared to only about 9%. It's about a 10x difference in likelihood of being disloyal. About the same percentage applied to repeat purchases. So it's huge, like almost a 10x variation in these things just because of the difference in a customer service interaction. And then the most telling number was the likelihood that people would say bad things about the company, uh, which, of course, these days is super critical because everybody's reading reviews. You've got Yelp, you've got uh, Amazon reviews, Google reviews. Uh, practically every experience people have now is rated somehow. Right. And the last thing you want are your customers saying bad things. And what they found was the customers who had a high effort experience were 88% likely to say bad things about the brand compared to just 1% of the customers who had a low effort experience. So effort is huge. And they found that it was a big driver of loyalty. I'm going to give you another quick example, too, from Amazon. About a few years ago, my loyalty to Amazon was tested because in Texas, they were not charging sales tax. So for me, it was uh, basically most of my online purchases, just about all my online purchases were tax-free. Suddenly, Amazon, where I was making most of those, had an 8% price jump, effectively, because now they had to charge tax. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to shop around more because I'd be stupid to pay an extra 8% on all these purchases. When I look back a year later, my behavior had changed just about zero, Jim, because it, as you say, yeah. it was so easy just to click that one click, click buy button 
Uh, and instead of saying, well, yeah, okay, I could check on eBay, I could uh, shop around, I could check the reputation of the vendor to see if they're legit or not, and or I could just click this button and it'll be here in 48 hours or less. And I ended up just clicking that button every time. And that's why even today, they have half of all the e-commerce market and their market share is growing. Despite everybody's effort to match their delivery, to match their pricing, right. uh, their share is growing. Unlike Walmart or Target or any other company, we're paying for the opportunity to shop. Now, that's crazy. When you think it, when you think it in that way, you say, I'm paying $120 a year for the opportunity to shop with Amazon. Now, that's loyalty. That's a price difference simply because of experience. And, you know, what's interesting about banking, unlike most other industries, banking has seen a large number of small and large competitors come into the space with a focus on improving the customer experience, usually using digital channels. And the fintech firms that you just covered recently in an article you wrote are showing that they can bring a better customer experience to the table. Why is it so hard for legacy organizations to respond? Well, it's a good question. I think it's, uh, again, gets back to the priorities. Is the company really putting the customer at the center of things or, or is that given lip service? And, you know, clearly banks and other financial institutions have issues regarding compliance and security that go beyond other industries. Okay, the neighborhood pizza shop does not have the same concerns uh, that a bank does. Right. But at the same time, they have developed methods and they have organizations where undoubtedly the compliance people have significant organizational power. Security people do because the risks, of the consequences of getting hacked would be really uh, devastating. And there's not necessarily a balance in the organization saying, okay, who is speaking for the customer? And, you know, if you look at Amazon, I have never gotten one of those emails from Amazon, oh, hey, we got hacked, uh, sorry, you're gonna, we changed your password for you, and you're going to get a free year of LifeLock. Exactly. I'm using the same crappy password that I set up a dozen years ago. You know, when I go to Amazon, I'm always logged in. I don't have to log in every time the way I do at many, many companies and certainly every, every bank. They recognize me and say, hello, Roger. When I am looking at a product, that one click button is armed and ready for me to click. Okay, I don't, I don't have to log in. And by eliminating that friction, they are greatly increasing their conversion rate. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but we couldn't have weak security like Amazon does uh, because we're a bank. But... Amazon security is not weak. If I decided to send you a gift card by email, Jim, they would ask me to re-authenticate either with a credit card number or by logging in with my password. Right. If I decided to ship you a product that if I've never shipped you anything before, the same thing. If you do something that is a higher risk transaction, they will then go through an authentication process. But that takes actually some smart effort on the part of their coders and developers. And for many companies, it's easier just to build a wall around the entire website. So you're either in or you're out. We either know you or we don't know you. Uh, and, you know, it's funny. You would think a banker would recognize that, okay, if you look at a bank branch, you've got a vault that's really secure. You, people can't just walk in there. They have to authenticate with a signature and then to further access maybe a physical key of some kind, plus an ID. 
But you can walk in the door uh, without authenticating. You can read brochures. You can look around. You can talk to the manager. You can do all kinds of stuff without having to prove who you are. And in fact, the manager may recognize you if you happen to frequent that branch often. And it's only for those certain transactions that are potentially higher risk where you do have to authenticate in some way. Maybe it's simple as showing a driver's license. Maybe it's more. But, you know, that same kind of thinking can apply to websites and apps as well. So people can do a lot of low-risk things and be recognized as who they are, not just uh, be a total stranger. But if they're going to do something that involves transferring funds or other things that could be risky, then, okay, uh, authenticate them. Well, it's interesting because with Amazon, again, it's a great example on so many fronts, but, you know, they make everything that you do with them simple. You know, which brings me to your book. You have another book, a brand new book called Friction, The Untapped Force That Can Be Your Most Powerful Advantage. And you dig into the the biggest differentiator between legacy and digital firms being the elimination of friction. Why is friction such a major marketing and product development tool? Well, it's because of the importance of customer effort. You know, we talked about how it affects loyalty, how it affects reputation. And you know, it's so powerful. It, the other thing that it affects, obviously, is conversion. You know, we've got a great example uh, just in uh, the last few months where legacy companies like uh, Cisco have had web conferencing apps out there for years and years. Microsoft has Skype. These things have been around uh, for years and years. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, Zoom is what everybody is doing. In fact, it's become almost a generic term like Googling for search. Yeah. Uh, now, oh yeah, we're going to Zoom. It's crazy, but you know, how did they do that? They made it really, really simple to get going, in part by taking a few security shortcuts that later they were criticized for. But what they did do was demonstrate how ease of getting going can be a huge differentiator. You know, if you make it easy to set up an account, you're going to get more accounts. It's that simple. And people either underestimate how much effort is involved or they underestimate the importance of that effort. You know, the the, uh, story that I like to tell, it's yet another Amazon one, but it is about uh, one-click where back in 1998, they patented one-click ordering. And a lot of companies thought, well, you can't patent that. That's obvious. You know, you're not really doing anything original there. And Barnes & Noble, who was their chief competitor at the time, implemented one-click ordering or version of it on their website and got blocked in a legal battle with Amazon that Amazon spent millions of dollars to defend, and they actually won the case. And what did they get for that effort? They forced Barnes & Noble and other e-commerce competitors to add one tiny little click to their process. That's all. And then, you know, if you want another indicator of how that was perhaps a very smart move... At the time, Steve Jobs was about to introduce Apple's new music store, iTunes. He looked at one-click ordering. They did not try and work around the patent by technical means. They didn't try and fight it in court. They went to Amazon and paid them a million bucks so that they could save, again, one tiny little click versus all of their competition. And for them, it was worth that million bucks to do it. And, of course, we know that iTunes worked out pretty darn well for Apple. Oh, yeah. Well, it's interesting. You bring up Zoom. And Zoom's a great example, too, because, yes, they had that issue with security that was a big issue. They've kept on growing. They never saw a depletion or a drop in their usage. They saw some corporations go a different way. They quickly solved the problem. They brought it to the marketplace. But the reality is most people said, you know what? I don't want to give up the simplicity. I know I'm taking a risk. I'm going to put some things in place so I don't have to worry about it. You know, again, it's looking at the masses and saying, for nine-tenths of the engagements I had on Zoom, 
I don't have a real concern about security. You know, it's not my, if I'm doing the neighborhood cocktail party, if somebody else broke in, we restart it. You know, it's that easy. You'd say, it's easy to restart because it's still just one click. So to give you another example, Jim, uh, WhatsApp, the messaging app, uh, was bought by Facebook for $25 billion uh, when they were just almost pre-revenue. They had very little revenue at the time. What made them worth so much was that they had added millions and millions of users and were adding more at a furious pace. And what enabled them to do that was an exceptionally easy onboarding process, uh, kind of like what's driven Zoom uh, in these uh, more recent months. There was a user experience expert who did a teardown of their onboarding, and the entire process took just over two minutes, and that included a verification step on the cell phone. They eliminated the need for setting up a password. You didn't need to set up a username. All these things that normally take you know, a few keystrokes here, a few seconds there, they completely eliminated, and they made it really easy to invite your friends. So you can imagine how that snowballed where you get onboarded in two minutes and 14 seconds or something. You hit the button, you invite all your friends. Many of them get onboarded in a couple of minutes and do the same, for, and suddenly you've got hundreds and hundreds of new users just from one person getting on board. So eliminating friction can be a real disruptive force because at the time, there were dozens of messaging apps out there that could have become what they did, but they made it so simple and so frictionless that they were the ones that succeeded. Well, it's interesting because when you look at a lot of these companies, when you look at American Express with their platinum card, where all they collect is your name, your social security number, and your cell phone number, and the cell phone number is collected only so they can get back to you by text and tell you they've been approved. Again, they're not saying that everybody's going to be able to get the entire application filled out just with name and social security number. But they put a percentage on it and say, you know, the majority, the vast majority are going to get through that in much the same way with the Rocket Mortgage. They've made their entire living. In fact, I don't think Quicken Loans even exist anymore except as the ownership company. But Rocket Mortgage, you're getting the entire mortgage process done in five minutes. We all have gone through the mortgage process and it never was five minutes. You don't you don't even get through the first application in that amount of time. And, and again, that drives market share. But I think as you brought up also, this the entire onboarding experience. And in your book, you talk about the connection between abandoned shopping carts and the presence of friction. Can you describe that a little bit about how that connects? Yeah, well, just to put the friction problem in perspective, every year there are trillions of dollars of merchandise abandoned in e-commerce shopping carts where these e-commerce companies spent massive amounts of money to first attract people with search ads, with social media, with content marketing, all the things that we do to get customers to our websites or our app, get them to shop around, uh, put items in their cart, get all the way to the point of completing the purchase, but not get them across the finish line. And so when companies have analyzed why people abandon shopping carts, most of the reasons are frictional in nature. They are things like a complicated checkout process, the need to set up an account uh, with the company in order to make that purchase, surprises at the end, things that are confusing where it's just not clear what happens next. If you look at smart e-commerce companies, they always make it clear what the next step is. Like there's going to be a button that says continue, and they will also tell you things like you'll have a chance to review your order before it's concluded. So, you know, I've been on sites where I'm not sure what clicking that continue button does because I don't know if they applied my discount that they were supposed to. And I'm afraid that if I click that one more time, they say, thank you for your order, Roger. Uh, it's on its way. 
uh, and I'll have no ability to change it. So there's always this element of clarity and certainty, and at the same time, minimum effort to do it. I mean, and obviously Amazon solved that with one-click ordering because there's almost no effort involved in that. But even if you are dealing with a new customer, you know, how easily can you get them on board? How much information do you absolutely need to complete the order? Uh, can you let them check out as a guest by using PayPal or one of the other generic payment methods? People do that, especially in companies that I'm not sure I'm going to deal with again. I don't really want to set up an account and have all my account info out there, maybe my credit card info too. I would greatly prefer to check out as a guest, even though, you know, it's in that company's interest. Well, yeah, we'd like to have all Rogers' information so we can market to them in the future and so on. But from a customer-centric point of view, you want to make it easy for me to check out in whatever way I find most convenient. So when you look at this and you look at the common points of friction at most organizations, what did you find them to be? If you're a financial institution, where do you start when you're trying to find points of friction? Well, I think by observing your processes and user behaviors in combination. My Forbes article from just a couple of weeks ago that I think was uh, how we connected yep. talked about a teardown of accounts set up at about a dozen different financial institutions, ranging from some newer fintech firms to some old line banks. And the difference in clicks was really astounding uh, from a low of somewhere around, I think, 26 or something up to 120 yep. for uh, the worst, where in that case, uh, that was a, an old line bank. And the days to actually use the account was even more dramatic. Right. There were a number of institutions, both uh, new and old, who had the account up and running and fully available to the user within two or three days. But the worst one was 36 working days. You know, imagine spending a month and a half waiting for your account to be open. So maybe you could deposit that check that you've had, which is why you open the account. Right. It's just insanity. People are not observing customers. They're not empathizing with the customers. They haven't gone through that process themselves. You know, if the executive VP should set up an account at his own institution sometime or her own institution and see how easy it is. But I think there's also ways to measure the experience via web metrics where you can see how long people are spending on each step. You can count clicks, count. And, you know, it's important to count everything. If you ask somebody, well, how many steps are there in your setup process? You know, they'll think for a minute and say, well, there's three. Because they'll think, well, there's three screens that people go through. In fact, you need to be counting every keystroke, every scroll, every time you have to move the screen, every single little action the user has to take in order to complete that. One of the most common errors that I see is the failure to leverage what's called autocomplete. Forms on the web are really annoying. People hate web forms, especially longer forms where there's, you know, a dozen fields or even more. And people, if they see a long form, will just often back out of it and say, okay, I don't want to do this. I don't have time. I don't want to look up that information or even type it in. But Google, in its Chrome browser, makes it easy with autocomplete, where they remember things like your home address, your phone number, and so on. And you get to a form, and if it's properly coded, you know, just starting to type it in, a customer can probably fill out 90% of the form with just a few clicks. Right. But what I see, Jim, on the web is that probably half or fewer of the forms are properly coded. I had one, I was registering for a tech conference. Uh, now, you think tech companies would be pretty smart uh, uh, at this sort of thing, but every single field in that form populated with the word Roger, my first name, because clearly what the coder had done was taken an existing form 
and replicated the first field multiple times for the new form. And it looked fine if you looked at what it looked like on a website or in the app, but the autocomplete information was all first name. So I had to laboriously type in my phone number, type in my street address, type in my email address. And so that was hundreds of times more effort than was necessary. You know, if people were filling out something where they had another option, where they could go to a competitor and do it, or it just wasn't that important, they were going to get some information from you, but they didn't really want the information that badly, they would just bail out of it and go away. This is such simple stuff, but people aren't looking at it. They're not measuring it. They're not observing their customers doing it. So when you look at an organization, is the whole issue of friction or the elimination of friction a marketing function, a product management function, or is it cultural throughout the whole organization? You've hit the nail on the head there, Jim. It is a cultural thing because what will happen is if you start focusing on friction in your customer experience, which is a really good place to start, you will start finding it internally too in your own processes, the things that your employees have to do. And when you can simplify those processes, you will be able to really accomplish multiple goals. You'll save time and money, but you'll also show those people that you are on their side. Not just, you know, you've got to do this because this is the way we do it here at our company. Uh, You know, one of the most powerful questions a manager can ask their people is, how can I make your job easier? Now, I would say that very rarely do employees, particularly frontline employees, hear that. It's like, how can we help you get more done? How can, we, how can you be more productive? Uh, right. Instead of how can we make your job easier? But when you ask those questions, you're doing two things. You can identify those bottlenecks that are occurring uh, that you may not be aware of or just assume they have to be. You may find that people are following procedures that aren't even necessary, but that's the way they've been done. And they were when they were taught, that was how they did it. And it's become institutionalized. And then finally, the most important thing is you are showing your people that you are on their side, that you empathize with them, that you know that they are working hard, trying to get a lot done. And if you can make their load easier in any way, they will appreciate that. And, you know, this kind of empathy and trust is reciprocated. They will trust the company more uh, and you more when you have that attitude. And basically, I would imagine that making it cultural makes it so that there's a focus not just on eliminating the friction to get the customer, but eliminating the friction to keep the customer, to engage with the customer, and to cross-sell the customer. So when it becomes culture, it becomes everybody's job to make the engagement level or the communication level simpler. As a final question, Roger, we're going through an unusual time, most unusual time in our lifetimes with covid and has really made everybody shelter at home um, and has gotten a lot more people involved in digital transactions than ever before. Do you think the importance of friction and, to go back to your first book, the importance of understanding the customer is really elevated because now the consumer has been educated beyond, in our case, financial services, to how simple some processes can be? Well, sure. You know, I've got a first-hand example of that. My wife is not the, necessarily the most digital person in the world. She's okay, uh, but uh, uh, doesn't really uh, look for new opportunities to do things digitally. But uh, we had gotten a physical check in the mail, 
and she wanted to deposit it, did not want to go to uh, the bank in person, which may not have even been open at the time, I'm not sure. And so she said, oh, I can do this electronically. She installed the app and uh, took a picture of the check, and lo and behold, wow, it was there in the account. And it's like, wow, this is pretty easy. Is she going to physically go to the branch next time she has a check? Probably not, which, uh, you know, and I think people are discovering this. It is so critical to keep things easy and make them easy. The thing that ties my two books together, even though they're spaced apart by, uh, I don't know, seven or eight years or something, is the emphasis on behavioral science and specifically on how humans behave and the science behind that. Richard Thaler, Nobel Prize winner, won his prize basically for a pretty simple understanding that when you make things really easy for people to do, they will do that more often. And in the case of financial instruments like retirement plans, if you opted people in and allowed them to opt out instead of vice versa, you had more people who participated in retirement plans. And, you know, if you preset the contribution level at a point that was favorable to the employee and then maybe increased a little bit over time, automatically, again, always giving the employee the chance to opt out, they would save more money for retirement. And this is a huge societal problem in the United States, at least, where we rely on these private plans for retirement income. Right. And, you know, really, his great insight was that, gee, you make something easy and people will do more of it. And I've corresponded with him and uh, I can sense that there's a frustration uh, with him that when he's called in by large organizations or governments and asked, uh, okay, hey, we have this important thing that we want to do here. We want more people to do this. You know, they're looking for some sort of magic uh, behavioral science dust uh, that he can sprinkle on it. Right. And so he says, well, yeah, what you really need to do is make it easier. And, and I sense his frustration because they fail to do that then. You know, it's like, no, we, no, we didn't want to do that. We, we didn't want to change the way we do things. We wanted to somehow make this more appealing uh, uh, by uh, nudging people in some other way. Right. Uh, when all, all you had to do is streamline it and make it easy. Well, it's interesting. You said at the very beginning that what we're looking for here is to make it easy and to make it seamless and frictionless. Roger, it's been great to have you on the show today. Tell our people, not only with your book, Brain Influence and Friction, but how else can they hear more from you and hear more about you? Well, the best jumping off point is my primary website, rogerdooley.com. And there I've got links to my neuromarketing blog, my Forbes blog, uh, my social media profiles. On social media, I am most active on Twitter, where I am at Roger Dooley. And I'm on LinkedIn, where I am Roger Dooley. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Really enjoyed having you on the show. Well, likewise, Jim. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Boy, as I look back at the interview with Roger Dooley, one thing that really hits home is there's probably nothing that's much more important than what we're doing in the financial services industry as far as simplifying the process. We make it way too difficult to have people bank with us. You know, we talked a little bit about the shopping cart scenario. How many people do we lose in process of opening an account that we never get back again? And the reason we don't get them back again is because by the time we get back to them, if we have a process to reach out to those people that abandon their shopping cart, they've already decided to go elsewhere. That means our process is not simple enough. And it doesn't go far enough simply to take the paper process and make it digital. You gotta take steps out of the process. Look at American Express. Look at Google, look at Amazon, look at all these examples. These have made it so that they can get to where you want to go 
as quickly and seamlessly as possible. Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed, rated as a top five banking podcast. I genuinely appreciate the support you have provided since we started this endeavor. If you enjoy what we are doing, please be sure to subscribe to Banking Transformed on your favorite podcast app. In addition, please take 30 to 45 seconds to show some love in the form of a review. It means the world to me. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Lawnbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Maroos. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.